Welcome to day two of Game Over International, day two of the Beijing Olympic Games 2022. Lots of twos today. I'm going to get right into it. I'm going to welcome in my guest, Sean Fitzgerald from The Athletic, the senior guy. I mean, senior's not uh, the the worst description when you're talking about uh, job title, right? I think it just means I'm old. <laughs> uh, maybe it's a bald thing. I don't know. But yeah, no, uh, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I was very overjoyed that you agreed to come on. And listen, I'm, yeah, I'm catching up to you quickly with the, with the balding. <laughs> overjoyed is a strong word, but I appreciate it. And I'll take it. <laughs> no, I, I am. I'm, I'm excited because like we haven't had a ton of chances to talk over the years, but I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, I feel like having people on that uh, I'm a big fan of that I get to chat with is part of the joy of getting to host these kinds of shows, right? Is it's been getting me through the Montreal Canadian season. Having to cover that team is just having interesting people on to talk to because the team's not very interesting. Has that season started? I wasn't aware. I, I'm not sure. We'll I, pretend it hasn't. But <laughs> <laughs> so a few things uh, happened so far on day two. Uh, I think the biggest one for Canada is that uh, a big rebound day for the mixed doubles curling team between uh, John Morris and Rachel Homan. Uh, three straight victories. Did you get a chance to watch any of that curling? Yeah, yeah. Watched, uh, watched, I've watched, geez, what do we got? I think I've, I probably watched about two thirds of them so far. Um, I mean, John Morris started off uh, probably definitely the shakier of the two. Rachel Holman's just been dialed in, especially the one last night. She had a couple of incredible, uh, raised, uh, raised double, um, a couple of fantastic shots. And Frankly, John Morris, I think, is probably my most quotable athlete of the game so far. I think he he might have slipped in a Trailer Park Boys reference last night when they were talking about shots, and he said that's uh, that's our worst case Ontario. <laughs> I mean, we all love the Trailer Park Boys references. I feel like most of the references have gone the way of uh, I'm blanking on the name now, but the new show that's like the Canadian one that's gone off uh, like, from Kenny. the guy who played Don Cherry, Letter Kenny, Letter Kenny. That's the name. Letter yeah, Kenny. that one's like Letter the Jerry new big Pizza. reference, right? Well, I mean, the thing is there, I don't know if you could get a lot of the language of Letterkenny on the CBC. Uh, <laughs> it's certainly true. not even after dark. <laughs> Frankly, even at this time of day, I'm a little leery of even trying to quote something without having a full coffee in me first. <laughs> I hear that. But yeah, I mean, John Morris has been fantastic. I mean, Rachel Holman has been fantastic on the ice. And while John's probably still trying to catch up, he's at least had some really good moments. I mean, he had a, uh, I think it was in that first match, um, where he was struggling against Great Britain and Colleen Jones got him at the fourth end break, fourth end because there's only eight ends in mixed doubles. And he goes and he, he says something along the lines of, um, you know, Rachel's going great and uh, I suck. <laughs> and he picked it up. I mean, not so much for that first game, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was something along the similar script to what he and Caitlin Moss had four years ago, right? Like I think they dropped their opener and then eventually, you know, caught fire and won the whole thing. I mean, this is just, this is a super team, a super team of two. Like if, you know, John Morris and Rachel Holman are so accomplished, Morris, you know, a bit more so at the Olympic level, but Rachel Holman's been a star on the national, international level for Canada for, geez, if I start to think back about how long now I'm going to age myself even more. Yeah. I mean, it's a recognizable name, even for people who don't follow curling every day, right? Like it, this team is has high aspirations and they Canada is the only team in mixed doubles to win a gold medal since it debuted in the last Olympics. So I think we're all itching to keep it that way. And 
you know, I'm sure there were probably some nerves in that first game because Great Britain is, I believe, the reigning world champion coming into these games in, in mixed doubles curling. So it, it could be a situation where it's just, you know, your top competition is your first game and maybe they just got the better of uh, John a little bit there. And now they'll like, you know, ease into it throughout the games here. There's a lot of games every day, essentially, for the for the curlers. They don't get much of a break. And uh, by the time the medal round comes around, they'll be humming. Well, I mean, it's interesting to, to take a look back. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if we can ever discount how how much the preparations of this have been impacted by makes grand sweeping gesture. I mean, not at my basement yeah. specifically, but I mean, all like, this. <laughs> yes, all of this. Uh, I mean, they were they were training in isolation. And I don't say that as like a, a cute sort of metaphor here. Like they were, they were like Jack Nicholson in the shining isolation. They were up in the mountains in Canmore, um, you know, ice fishing and snowshoeing and cross country skiing during the day, which again, doesn't sound so bad, but unless it, you're forced to, and you can't cross paths with another human being because a, a single positive COVID case could ruin your entire games. And, you know, the Canmore golf and uh, curling club, gave them uh, dedicated ice at night. So they go and they practice at night and then avoid all the human beings, but still wear masks in the common areas. And then during the day um, they train and then you have to get all the way over to Beijing without, you know, coming across anybody who might contaminate you with COVID. And then you get into the venue for the very first time. And then you step onto the ice as you know, the known super team with all of these expectations for gold. So um, yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest start, as Devin Haru at the CBC has pointed out, like they have a very top heavy schedule where, you know, they face the former Olympic medalists. They face, I guess you're not a former Olympic medalist. They face the Olympic medalists from 2018. They face world champions. Um, and then after that, they'll probably settle out and, uh, you know, get in better position for, for the big games. Yeah. And I think anytime that you come into a, a winter Olympics in, in your Canadian and you have medal aspirations, like the pressure is just so high. I, Ever since they started the Own the Podium program, it seems like every year we want to get like a record number of medals. And obviously it's tough to equal what happened in Vancouver. It was such a magical situation. But the aspirations for the country in terms of like medal count and gold count have completely changed since that Olympics. So there's Isn't a lot of pressure on these athletes. Too? That's a neat conversation, too, because, I mean, before 2010, you mentioned Own the Podium. Um, there's, there's other two, there's other funding, funding mechanisms, excuse me, that have cropped up too. like B210 is a Montreal based, uh, private Olympic booster club, basically, except it's, um, backed by, or has been backed and was started by some of the wealthiest people in Canada, Andre Desmarais, um, you know, the head of the power corp, um, you know, has spoken to the group and, you know, B210 is, you know, Andrew Berkshire, uh, has a, has a problem with his bobsled. He needs a new one. So you present a business case saying, you know what, 2022, I'm going to dominate, but I have to get rid of this rust bucket. So they'll say, okay, here's the money, but you have to meet these conditions. And they give you uh, training help. They give you physio help. They give you sports psychology. They bring you into their elite development camps. Like what, what 2010 did, I think, was completely flip the narrative of how we approach sports as Canadians. That, you know, the old joke you know, from 1976, Montreal, 1988, Calgary was at fourth place was Canadian bronze. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, you get there. It's like, well, hey, you know what? Gosh, they tried real hard. God, good on them. And you know what? Like to get to the Olympics, that's a big deal. And to get on the podium anywhere is an even bigger deal. And I'm not 
taking away from that at all. But the expectation was, isn't that great? We got on the podium. Canada didn't win gold in 1976. They didn't win gold in 1988. They came into 2010 having never won gold, the only country to host a games to never win gold at their home games. But because the funding model had been switched and the philosophy at which Canadians approached the games, it completely changed. So we went from saying, okay, we have $100. We're going to spread this $100 equally over, more or less equally, over biathlon, law, uh, ski jump, you know, uh, ice dance, uh, hockey. We're going to spread it all equally because our philosophy as Canadians is, you know, the Olympics is a chance for all of us to compete and participate. And that's the goal. That's the philosophy. 2010 flipped that where it said, no, we're going we're gonna to become assassins here and we're going to fund you based on results. And that has, you know, over the course of what, we're less than two decades in, completely changed um, our funding principles and our approach and frankly, our results on the global stage to now. I mean, you're going to have a lot of trouble keeping up with how many Canadians win gold and win silver and win bronze. And, you know, as much as, you know, getting to the Olympics at all and finishing fourth is fun and you appreciate the athletes and I think we still have to like maintain that appreciation that we always had for the athletes just being there and competing. It is a lot more fun when you bring home the hardware. Mm. <laughs> so it's a little bit like capitalistic and it there's the magic of the games is the athletes, uh, not uh, the Olympics themselves or the IOC, which I think we can agree are, is not exactly the most ethical situation or organization. But the athletes and, and winning gold and, and seeing them triumph over things like, I mean, I, I hate to keep going back to 2010 because it's just, it was such a magical time. But you think of like that Stephen Brunt video essay at the end of the games there before when men even won gold in hockey. And it was already such a successful games from like Johnny Rochette, from Alexandre Bilodeau, like all these things that trickled down. And then you see, you know, we've got a, by the end of the weekend, we're going to have Mikhail Kingsbury competing for gold in moguls, which is the possibility of a fourth straight gold in men's moguls. Like that's incredible. The difference that essentially a decade makes, I guess it's 12 years now, but yeah, Mikhail Kingsbury, uh, just to smoothly transition that in finished number one in qualifiers for the moguls, uh, seemed to be number one with a bullet and he looks poised to do exactly what he did in Pyeongchang. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those sports, too, that, I mean, you take a look and you watch it. And I, I think, Andrew, it'd be a really interesting exercise to sit back and take a look and say, you know what? I'd be comfortable doing that Olympic sport in the winter. How many, how many winter sports would you be comfortable trying? Right? Like, that's one of those where you're like, no way. I have, I have a functioning, I mean, they're old, but a functioning MCL, a functioning LCL. I still have a meniscus. Like, there's no way I'm trying mobile. So you really go through it, right? Like, like how many Olympic winter sports would you be comfortable trying? Okay, hockey, we'll, we'll scrap that one off. But like speed skating, I mean, those are difficult blades. Uh, moguls, like there go your knees. Ski jump, hell no. I just watched Eddie the Eagle, the, the one with uh, Hugh Jackman oh, yeah. over the weekend. I mean, it kind of teared me up, but um, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. Uh, moguls is one of those where you're like, you're watching it on TV. It's like, okay, they're skating over bumps, but I've been there. Like I, I was at the bottom of the hill in Sochi. Those things are massive. It's like jumping over a VW bug. Um, and, and they do it all the time and to do it for that long. And at the level Mikhail Kingsbury has for so long, it's, it's one of those sports that unfortunately, you know, outside of Quebec, we just don't, 
I think, appreciate um, the magnitude of what he's accomplished. Absolutely. And every time I watch the moguls, I, I think in my head, how many of them could I do before I fall? And I don't think the number is that high. Like, I don't think I'd get past one hand. Like, Jennifer Heil was a mogul's star. Yes. And, I, and ended up, um, you know, helping drive B210. And as, you know, one of the people behind the scenes who's, I mean, really deserves more kudos for just how successful Canada's become because of these improved funding mechanisms. But, you know, she paid the price surgically with some of those knees, right? Like, that's a tough, tough sport physically. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, you look at just the wear and tear that athletes deal with with any sport, really. And you look at, like, I heard stories of, like, Andre Agassi after he retired from tennis and just, like, all of his joints were destroyed. And you look at goaltenders in hockey, every hockey player with head injuries, football players, like, the ones that compete in the Olympics in sports that don't really get their time to shine outside of the Olympics you wonder how little we take care of those people at the end of it, because, you know, uh, Alexandre Bilodeau essentially retired by around age 30. Right. And this, like, we don't know if this will be Mikhail Kingsbury's last games, but as he's getting a little bit older, it's very possible. So it's, it's a tough thing. You know, like you want to celebrate the accomplishments, but there's that other side of your brain that's going like, how much are these people putting themselves through for this fleeting moment of glory? As much as like you have it forever in your memories. And of course, like the country will remember you and all that, but you know, I don't know if we do a good enough job taking advantage of uh, getting these athletes paid at the end of the day. I think we're doing better, but we could probably still do better yet. Canadian Olympic committee a few Olympic cycles ago, um, finally started taking some look in towards this. I, I still don't know um, that they're doing enough necessarily, but um, you know, of helping athletes transition out of sport because I mean, just like hockey players that hockey players forego a regular high school education. I'll put that with uh, maybe an asterisk there. Um, and, and a lot of them who go to the junior hockey um, obviously forego university education. So, you know, if you're a big superstar and you can buy half of Northern Alberta and put a massive house on it, like Connor McDavid, that's one thing. But if you make a living for a few years as a fourth liner, like you still have to work. And frankly, even if you are Connor McDavid, once you retire, you know, you can only play so much golf from the age of, you know, 35 onwards. So um, at least in hockey and in pro sports, you do have that financial cushion. But I mean, there are stories of Olympic swimmers, um, of Olympians, you know, in, in biathlon um, who compete and compete. And by the time they're done, you know, they're still in their late 20s, early 30s. But, you know, while they're you know, their, their classmates from university had gone on to do those internships to start their careers and are now already on that corporate treadmill. You're now at 28, 29, 30 saying, okay, God, am I going to be an intern now? How does that work? So the COC has done some work with its Olympic partners. I mean, you have four pretty big pillar sponsors. You have RBC, Canadian Tire, um, SO, um, you know, where you can provide sort of launch pads um, and, and they're starting to look towards that, but yeah, that's a, that's a real question that, that still, I think needs a definitive answer of, you know, how can we help our Canadian athletes who, you know, they will say they don't give up so much because they do it because they love it, but there is a trade-off. So how can we help sort of ease that transition once they're done and go into real life like the rest of us? 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, yeah. not that I'm real life because I don't have a real job either, but you know, for <laughs> yeah, somebody who tell me about it. I just get to talk to you on the, on a live YouTube video. You're the That's one who has job. a real job now. I just sit here and drink my coffee. <laughs> All right, uh, we have a question that's come up a couple times here in the stream chat, and that is essentially, uh, well, I guess to you, Sean, first of all, and I'll answer after, uh, what is your favorite sport to watch in the Olympics outside of hockey? Oh, dude. Oh, you can man. pick a couple if you don't want to be exclusive. Oh, no. Um, can I go a bit off stream here? Um, my favorite ever Olympic moment, and I, I only got to go to two. I got only, I mean, I got to go 2012 London um, and I got to go to 2014 Sochi. The best thing, and I'm not saying this lightly, the best thing I have ever seen in my entire life was the women's gold medal boxing final at the 2012 games in London. Um, so I went there and I was spending a lot of time following Mary Spencer, a boxer from Windsor, who was a world champion, was expected to win. You know, as it turned out, sort of the moment, the stage, we talked about preparation and pressure earlier. It kind of got to her. She didn't perform up to expectation, her own expectation. It was a very, it was a very tough story. But uh, we're in the mix zone after one of after her loss, and all of a sudden, it's in London, and it's in a convention center. So all of the all of the stands are aluminum, right? They're just the temporary stands. And all of a sudden, it sounds like a tropical rainstorm out there, like thump 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 thump. thump feet jumping up and down just you know anticipation while we're in the mix zone and i poke my head out and there's this irish boxer who's fighting her name's katie taylor so i make a note i'm like well that's interesting if she wins i'll come back and, and do the gold medal so she won and she was heading out to do the you know compete against russia for the gold medal now in 2012 ireland was still coming out of this you know, the great recession and it had been hit hard in 2008. So, you know, the entire economy was hit. Um, so you show up at this convention center and it holds, I think 8,500, about 8,300 were from Ireland. And I talked to people beforehand, like there are folks who hadn't been working for a while. They sold things. They sold an old watch to get the flight from Ireland, whether it be, you know, uh, somewhere in Dublin, which is near where Katie Taylor was from, to get over to London, get a ticket and get in there. And she walks out there and um, it was an eruption like I've never seen. And I've been to a Super Bowl. I've been to Stanley Cup playoffs. Like the aluminum stands were vibrating. People were roaring. Ireland doesn't win a lot of gold medals. We're talking about Canada. Ireland wins even fewer. And this woman, Katie Taylor, who trained in Bray in a pub, this sounds like I'm making the story up, Andrew. I'm not. She, there was no bathroom in the, uh, in the, you know, above the, the, in the gym where she was working. So to use the bathroom, she had to go to the pub downstairs. Uh, there was no heat in the winter. It was, it was like an Irish Rocky, basically. So she goes out there and she has the weight of the country on her shoulder. They're showing it back in Ireland on a big screen in what's like Downsview Park, right? Like it's just this massive outdoor facility. And she has all that on her shoulders and she goes out and she wins. And at the end, she's standing there with the Irish flag draped over her shoulder and the crowd's just exploding um, and they won't leave. You know, the, the, the organizer's like, hey, we, we need this space after we have to get more people in. Um, but they're just there's this pure joy and something that I don't think you get in pro sports, as weird as that sounds, because it meant something to every single one of those folks there. Um, and that's the power of Olympic sport. And I could go on and on. I mean, I was I was at the bottom of the hill when Jan Hudet's one in Sochi, uh, you know, talking about re repaired knees um, and what that meant to him and his journey. Like, 
Gilmore Junio and Sochi when he gave up his spot to a teammate. Like the Olympics, you mentioned this earlier, like the Olympics are the best run by some of the worst. Exactly. It's the same thing as like the World Cup, right? It's like this amazing event. Yeah. You fall in love with all of these athletes and all of their stories because they are triumphs, they are struggles, they are adversity. And here they are on the stage and let's have a moment to celebrate them. It's it's fantastic. There's there's nothing, and I, I say this very seriously, there's nothing I love more than the Olympic Games. Yeah, they are a, a truly special event. I'm looking now, I had it written down about uh, Canada is, I think, seventh in the team figure skating as well now. Um, looks like uh, they did a little bit better. In the, I didn't get a chance to watch any of the figure skating yet. Uh, the They did pretty well in the rhythm dance. I know it's not uh, the story that we got obsessed with, with the ice dancing when it was the team, but uh, it seems like they're in a pretty good position there. I don't know if Canada has a chance to really medal in uh, the team figure skating, but I would assume that there's a couple events there that they have a chance because there's usually some decent. fourth after the first event last night. Yeah, fourth's not too bad. I and mean, there's still a long program to go, but yeah, no, it's yeah. going to be tough to top anything virtue and Moyer ever did for sure. Oh yeah. That, that was uh, an iconic moment for yeah. forever. I mean, even today, I, there was a bunch of people posting just the, their long program with like different music to it. And it was all over Twitter. Just the mere mention of figure skating or ice dancing in, in the Olympics. And immediately the virtue and Moyer stuff comes up. There's and, another sport I could never do. Like I would never oh, yeah. ever try that. Like I would, I would never, I, I would never try figure skating because I need elbow pads, I need helmets, I need shin guards. Like, no way. And and what Virtue and Moyer did, I I still can't properly explain. Yeah, Sean, I can't dance with shoes on. You put skates on at the same time. It's it's a bad scene. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> it's not going to work out too well. Uh, the opening ceremonies are coming up pretty shortly here. Do you have any expectations? Because I know that uh, Beijing kind of set the standard for the Summer Olympics a few years ago in incredible fashion, what they're able to accomplish just by, you know, throwing money and incredibly well-trained people at the at the thing. Do we think we're going to see another, you know, Olympics-defining opening ceremony here? I think the crowd could be a bit smaller. Yes, that's true. That's true. It's this one's a tough one because it's, you know, the Olympics are in its ideal form about coming together. I mean, you get all the stories, you know, one of the great stories that comes out every two years is, you know, how the local organizing committee has to hand out like tens of thousands of condoms in the athletes village, because, you know, the second, the second you're done competing, like you've been training for four years or your whole life to get here. Yeah. You're, you're goddamn right. You're going to party, right? Like, we're not getting any of that. I mean, getting it, no pun intended. Um, but like, you're not going to get that social aspect of it, right? You're not going to see the shots of mom and dad in the stands. Yeah. You're not going to get the shots of friends and family and, you know, the, the, the sister who helped drive you to all those practices or, um, you know, all of that. You're not going to get that. And you strip away a lot of it. So it, I think... You know, it might feel a bit transactional, maybe even watching it from here. It's like, it's, it's just the sport. It's like, you know, I'm just watching, you know, the Habs and Leafs in an empty barn, which is essentially at that point, just a hockey game buffered around a bunch of beer and car commercials, right? Like it's just yeah. a transaction. Um, so you're going to strip away some of that. 
Um, I think, you know, speaking strictly of, of today, I'll be really interested to see how NBC and CBC cover um, the broader issues around China hosting these games that we know that, um, you know, China was awarded these games by four votes over Kazakhstan, um, in part because a bunch of other countries uh, lowered their hand saying, no, we don't want to host it. It's way too expensive. Um, and then, you know, how, how NBC and CBC treat the important real world news around these games. So not inside the Olympic bubble, but we're talking about the human rights abuses. We're talking about uh, suppression of pro-democracy movements, obviously Tibet, Taiwan, uh, the Uyghur population. Um, how are they going to treat that um, with their folks on the ground? That'll be one thing I'm watching today. Yeah, there's that's the thing is like, it's always a little bit complicated with the Olympics and this year, infinitely more so it's like every time you catch yourself enjoying it too much you got to kind of like rein it in a little bit and think about the other consequences which it's unfortunate that that's where we are with this but well it's not even i mean the olympics are the big one but i mean look where the world cup is this year as well yeah you mentioned fifa i mean it's in qatar and i mean you flip on the tv this morning like dustin johnson's golfing in saudi arabia and nobody's really talking about that um yeah, so the, the idea of, I think, you know, Scott Stinson, uh, sports columnist, uh, mentioned, you know, a couple of weeks ago that 2022 is going to be the year that we have to learn to talk about sport washing and what that all means. And I think that, you know, for all intents and purposes, that starts today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. We're, uh, I don't think I answered the question when they asked uh, what was my favorite sport other than hockey. It's a tough one. I feel like I really... The 2010 Olympics between the Dufour Lapointe sisters and Alexandre Bilodeau were such a big thing. Like I really enjoy that event. I also I really enjoy all the new events that they're adding. Like I, I think that the Winter Olympics have suffered for a long time from having not enough events that aren't cross country skiing. I kind of went on a rant on the first show that I don't like cross country skiing because it just seems like it's an excuse to give Norway a bunch of medals because <laughs> they're amazing at it. But I want to see more new event, new events. I love the mixed doubles curling. I love uh, the added snowboard stuff. I'm not like, I don't even really like half pipe that much, but I really like the, the slope styles, uh, the uh, snowboard cross, I guess it's called. That's really fun to me. The race aspect of it. It almost reminds me like of a video game, which is fun. And I would like to see them add something like three on three hockey in the future, especially if, you know, you're just we get a situation you play chow, right? Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you have both three on three hockey and five on five hockey? Just add some variety. And I feel like you could have guys that are Dangle specialized in that. Play that one. Only if <laughs> Dangle does play by play of the three on three. Steve Dangle. Yeah. Steve Dangle does his little streams. For the three on three reacting can't to see it. Why not do that at the Olympic level? It's time. Yeah. Why not? That'd be fantastic. CBC call Steve. Hire him. Um, other than that, uh, I think we probably covered everything in big from day two of the Olympics. Is there anything you're looking forward to for day three, Sean? Oh man. You know what? Like one of the great things about the Olympics and again, Olympics are the best run by the worst um, is that you can settle into a game's, and think, okay, I'm looking forward to this, I'm looking forward to that, and then you completely fall in love and become obsessed with something else. Yes. Like I could, I could sit here and talk to you in 10 days and say, holy crap, can you believe that biathlon finish? 
And, you know, I wouldn't know anything about how many targets or what the bullet is or how they shoot it. But all of a sudden now I've gone down the Google rabbit hole and I can tell you the different models of the air rifles they're using. And, oh, I can't believe they made that decision. And like, that's the best part of the Olympics is that you fall into these things and you become so engrossed and you fall down the rabbit hole forever. Yeah. And you start doing things like any judge sport. You're like, ah, I can't believe they gave them that award. And you're, right. You're I wouldn't know out. a triple axically if it. A triple axle, I wouldn't be able to properly define it if you literally kicked me in the face with it. But, you know, by the end of these two weeks for about two hours, I'm going to have an opinion on it. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly it. All right. Uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there because everybody's going to be tuning into the opening ceremonies shortly here. But before we close things off, Sean, tell everybody where they can find your work. Yeah, I mean, uh, at The Athletic, um, I'm on Twitter, uh, although probably more than anybody should be. Um, and yeah, just floating around, floating around in the end of a pandemic, hopefully, hopefully the end of a pandemic. Yeah. Geez. Hopefully that would be nice to have some sort of defined end here at some point. I just want to get out of the basement, Andrew. I just want to get out of here. It's a, you know, it's fine, but the lighting could be better, obviously, but I just like to get outside. <laughs> yeah. I hear that. Like a dream of spring, you know, it's weather wise and pandemic wise. We're all hoping for it. And you're not going to be encumbered by having to stay inside and watch any playoffs in the spring. This is true. I will not. Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> all right. And for those interested, we there are links in the description, both on the YouTube channel and on the podcast to Sean's book. So you should check that out as well. On uh, I think it's a link to the Amazon profile for that book. So you can check it out. And uh, thanks, Sean, for joining me here today. Thanks for everybody for tuning in. And Omar White will be joining the show tomorrow to host because he's covering for weekends. So I look forward to that. We'll see you. I'll see you on Monday unless I have to jump in tomorrow. If At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.